You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Research from neuroscience and the social sciences over the last 40 years demonstrates that the young child's brain actually forms its neural pathways in the context of the child's relationships with primary caregivers. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Alan Shore, a member of the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and at the UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. He's the author of numerous books and articles in the areas of neuroscience, psychiatry, psychoanalysis, developmental psychology, pediatrics, and trauma. Welcome, Dr. Shore. Nice to be here. Today, we are discussing pediatric neurobiology. Please describe for us how the brain develops from the third trimester through the second year of life. Well, this is one of the central studies, uh, outcomes of the, quote, decade of the brain, was for the first time really looking at the evolution of the brain, the early beginnings of the brain. We know now that the early development is a key to the etiology of all later forming disorders, whether they be schizophrenia or autism. All of the models have neurodevelopmental models, including the severe personality disorders. Incidentally, we're also now looking at the early precursors of diabetes and hypertension and vascular disease due to factors that are occurring pre- and postnatally. So uh, in this case, we are now finding out in much more detail how the early brain evolves. First of all, I should point out that the brain growth spurt has been known for some time is from the last trimester of pregnancy through the second year of life. During this period, the brain is doubling and tripling in size. At no other stage of the lifespan does it increase in such a huge way. In adolescence, there is somewhat of a reorganization, but essentially this brain growth spurt. We also know that the uh, connections between the mother and the infant, the early attachment, is occurring at this same particular point in time. The essential finding is that the early growth of the brain uh, is not just genetically encoded. It's experience-dependent, and the experiences that it needs to evolve are social experiences, exactly the kinds of social experiences, emotional experiences, that are found in the attachment bond of emotional communication between the mother and the infant. We're also seeing an expansion now of attachment theory as the major theory of development in science. Therefore, much more of the focus has been on the early developing right brain because the right brain is in a growth spurt before the left. The left is not going to start its growth spurt until the second year. That means all of the interactions over the first year of life, et cetera, are from right brain of the mother to the right brain of the baby. Again, the organization of the baby's brain now is impacted specifically, and the limbic system and the autonomic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary axis are coming on much earlier than the language systems Broca and Wernicke of the left hemisphere. Again, it's through the emotional communications, the mother's ability to read the baby states, to empathically read the baby states, to psychobiologically attune with these states, and then essentially to regulate the baby states. Initially, the brain is immature. The baby cannot regulate its emotional states. The primary caregiver is, is essential for that regulation, for the soothing and the calming, as well as for bringing the baby up into joy states. So ultimately, it's these interactions that are imprinted into the right brain and allow for the connectivity of the right brain, especially between the limbic emotion processing limbic and the autonomic nervous systems. So, for example, 
let's say the baby is crying and the mother responds. How does that register and, and affect the development of the brain in the child? The soothing of the baby really is the regulation of the baby's arousal level because it's the mother is taking the baby down in crying states. The baby is in a state of hyperarousal. So essentially what you're seeing is the mother is soothing the baby's energy-expending sympathetic nervous system and now regulating it down, and therefore you would actually see the heart rate now dropping, etc., and we're looking at the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system of the body are, are being controlled by the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is now being regulated by higher limbic structures above. The highest stress regulatory mechanisms in the brain, in humans and animals, is in the right brain, is in the nonverbal right brain. The wiring of these circuits from subcortical to cortical areas, the cortical areas coming on later, the wiring of these circuits is now being impacted by the nature of its learning experiences with the mother. So you're seeing immediate psychobiological effects, but you're also seeing long-term effects. These areas of the limbic system, especially in the right hemisphere, which processes faces, tone of voice, and gestures, you'll see massive synaptogenesis of these parts because they are in a critical period of growth. So optimally here, it's during the critical period of growth that the attachment mechanism is setting up the wiring of these circuits for better or for worse. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Alan Shore, a member of the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and at the UCLA Center for Culture, Brain, and Development. We're discussing pediatric neurobiology. So does early experience with caregivers then influence the neurochemistry of the child's brain? Absolutely, and that's essentially it. I mean, again, these models now are psychobiological or psychoneurobiological. I'm suggesting that at this point, the understanding must be much more than purely psychological because what we're looking at as the brain itself evolves and evolves to more complexity as the higher centers come online, especially the prefrontal cortex of the human being, which really does not come online till the end of the first year, all of these structures and the connectivity between these structures are now being impacted by these early experiences. And again, they are being impacted through the psychobiological alterations of the hormones of the mother and the infant, and those hormones now are impacting the nature of the synaptogenesis itself. Uh, that is, the connectivity at, at the synapses would be uh, directly affected. Now, this goes, therefore, for better or for worse, because essentially we're looking at now the primary caregiver and the infant forming either a growth facilitating early environment for these right brain structures or a growth inhibiting early environment. We are now interested in not only normal development but also abnormal development. We're looking at not only the, what kinds of early context, social context that are interacting with the genetic situations to form resilient later structures but also for the early roots of psychopathogenesis or better or for worse. Uh, and we're looking at the difference there between securely attached and insecurely attached infants. Tell us about the differences in the brains of securely attached and insecurely attached infants. 
Well, again, the, the difference is like, this has nothing to do with the left hemispheres. It's got nothing to do with the, the later verbal analytic consciousness. This is all occurring in the right brain. These attachment interactions lead to internal working models of attachment. This has been known for 30 years. Internal working models, which individuals use at a non-conscious level to guide ourselves through the world, so to speak. And they have to do with this ability to read other human beings and to read their minds and faces, etc. We know that there are differences in these internal schema, these internal working models between securely attached and insecurely attached. The most divergence we see are between the securely attached and what are called the disorganized, disoriented, insecurely attached infants. These infants who have the poorest early beginnings usually have histories of abuse and neglect, and we know that early histories of abuse and neglect are found in a wide variety of the more severe psychiatric diseases and also these people are, are more susceptible later to more medical and physiological disorders. How does the infant's brain respond to trauma or neglect? Well, in cases of early abuse or neglect, what we're looking at is essentially relational trauma. These are attachment trauma. These are not traumas coming from the physical environment. They're coming from the social environment. So when it turns out that the haven of security, the primary caregiver, uh, at the same time, teen seems to be a source of massive dysregulation without repair. The baby is processing this, and this information is now going into, uh, into the wiring circuits of the baby's brain. Usually what we see is that the baby going into extreme states of hyperarousal with abuse, and therefore hypermetabolic states, or it's extreme states of hypoarousal and hypometabolic states. Uh, this is problematic during the brain growth spurt because the baby's brain actually uses more energy than the adult's brain in order to produce myelin and synapses, et cetera, et cetera. So any severe alteration of energy levels, such as in hypermetabolic or hypometabolic states, would ultimately have a long-term effect. And the real negative effect would be the thinning down of the connections between the higher centers of the right brain and the lower centers of the right brain, because that is essentially the effect regulatory mechanism whereby the higher centers regulate the lower psychobiological states, etc. Now, again, if you're in a critical period of brain development here, these would be imprinted as coping strategies that would be used at all later points of the lifespan, and especially the baby going into these shutdown states, these dissociative states. This could be used as a characterological mechanism for dealing with stress at all later points in the life. And can such profound effects ever be modified or altered? Absolutely they can. There are two meanings to this research. The first is that there needs to be much more early intervention. We need to move in more in the first year of life uh, with interventions. We now know how these mechanisms work and we have intervention models in pediatric review. I'm talking about this. And second of all, we need to base our uh, own uh, psychotherapy models about how the brain changes and about how interpersonal relationships alter those changes into our models of psychotherapy. Let me just say very quickly, I'm now involved with a study at the University of Western Ontario in Canada whereby we are putting mothers, both normal and, and severely disturbed mothers, in the fMRI scanners. We're now looking at the mother's brain changes as she is processing videos of her own babies in order to get deeper ideas about how these alterations occur in real time. How does the brain reorganize during adolescence? You said that's another time of growth. 
Yes, the the second time, I mean, the first major organization reorganization is in infancy. The second time is in adolescence. And both the left and the right hemispheres are reorganizing because it appears that the right hemisphere comes up first, then a two, uh, the left goes into a spurt, and it goes right, left, right, left throughout the lifespan. Like almost like Erickson was talking about. But in adolescence, there is a reorganization of these circuits. And essentially, it's the limbic circuits that get reorganized, the ones which are set up in early in infancy. And if you have a very weak system in early infancy, which is then thinned down again in adolescence, this could lead to uh, the severe alterations and the appearance of axis one disorders, schizophrenia, etc. So at each point, the brain is organizing, disorganizing, and reorganizing. That either allows for a disorganization into psychopathology or a reorganization at the higher levels of complexity, which is usually the case. Adolescence certainly is a critical time uh, in brain development. I want to thank Dr. Alan Shore, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the neurobiology in pediatrics. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.